Hopefully that scripture reading wasn't too long for you all. <laughs> Keep your attention like adults. You can uh, do that. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm a part of the teaching team, and I get to walk us through um, kicking off this Advent season. It's going to be kind of a fun thing, kind of weaving through this. A lot of times for Advent, we can look at a variety of different things, but this, this Advent, we're going to actually look in John chapter 1, and here's kind of what we have coming to look forward to, if you can look at this with the screen with me, and so there's three sermons here we're going to look at. This week, we're talking about the beginning and the Word. Next week, about the Word and the light, and um, the last week will be the Word became flesh. We titled our sermon series, Word Made Flesh which is from the King James English for uh, John 1.14. Um, kind of like an important thing to note here is Jesus was not made, but his flesh was made. And so otherwise you'll be a heretic and that'd be a bad news for you. So um, the word became flesh. He took on flesh and walked among us. And what we're gonna actually do is gonna look at um, some pretty interesting themes here in John chapter one. Uh, I kind of, you know, especially like through college, kind of developed this subtle thinking that the authors of scripture were kind of like these knuckle-dragging, mouth-breather people who like were all back and didn't really know what was going on, you know, and C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. It's when you think that people who came before you are dumber than you just because they came before you. And the reality is like in our modern context, that's a perpetual temptation. But what we're gonna actually see here in John chapter one is that John is a brilliant literary genius who actually demonstrates this great knowledge of a variety of Greek philosophy from Plato, Socrates to the people before them like Thales and Heraclitus. But then he also weaves in these Jewish ideas. And so what we see here in John 1 is actually John taking from the Greek tradition and pulling from the Jewish tradition and weaving an answer together that helps people see that no matter who you are or where you're from or what you believed or what you thought before, Jesus is the answer that you're ultimately looking for. And so if you're one of those people who like read books or do things like that, here's some uh, potential recommended reading if you're a kind of a nerd like me and you want to go deeper. Um, Passion of the Western Mind by Richard Tarnas is actually a book. He's, he's a non-Christian guy, but he's a brilliant work kind of tracing the history of thought from the earliest people we know up to our modern day, and then Christian philosophy, Mike Goheen, in the history of Western thought by John Frame. So none of which Luke and I are gonna talk about these next couple weeks are things that we noticed on our own. They're, uh, it's a bunch of plagiarized things. And so this is like my footnote for the next three weeks. Like none of this we're saying is original. If you don't believe me, you can read that stuff. So that's where we're going. So, but kind of the way that it wraps up here, kind of the message of John is kind of summarized in this. So when you read the Gospels or you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's important to note the first words of Jesus in those works. Because they kind of, in a way, are inviting us into kind of get the big picture or the big idea behind what that gospel is. For example, in Mark, the first words are repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Essentially, so Mark is gonna be an illustration in showing us how to repent and believe and what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth. So, but the first question in John is actually this. Here's what Jesus first says. The first words of Jesus in John. What are you seeking? And kind of like I mentioned, the Greeks were seeking something, the Jews were seeking something, and John is writing this first chapter to show us that what the Jews and Greeks were seeking is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. With a question for us this Advent season, just to pause and ask, ask yourself, Seth, what am I seeking? What are you seeking? What are you running towards? What's capturing your affection? What's the thing that's motivating you to keep going? What's the, what's the desire that's driving you forward? What are you seeking? And we're gonna see how whatever it is we're seeking, Christ is ultimately the answer to that. 
So in this passage, we're gonna see, like I said, we're gonna zoom in on these two words. We're gonna look at the word beginning, and we're gonna look at the word word. In the beginning was the word. And so I'm gonna spend time camping on the word beginning and spend time camping on the word word, and we're gonna have a whole sermon on just one verse this morning. So um, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the writers of Scripture and the way in which they challenge us and the way in which they encourage us. I pray that uh, all of us here in this room this morning, those who feel far from you, those who feel near to you, those who question your existence and or relevance, that we can all be encouraged and challenged and convicted by your Spirit through your Word. God, make me clear and helpful. Amen. Amen. So kind of, if you read John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, you can, apart from your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and all these old people, you can kind of really get a sense of what it's doing. But what I'm going to try and do here is help flush out the depth of what is behind these words in a way that's hopefully really helpful. So the word beginning is the word arche, I mean archaeology or digging deep or going down deeper. Um, just this past weekend, I was hanging the Christmas lights um, at my house. It's kind of my family tradition that every Black Friday we hang Christmas lights. I don't know why it's Black Friday. It just kind of is what it is. Light in the darkness, Black Friday. I'm not totally sure. It's not that meaningful. But the, we're, we're trying to like just do it on Black Friday. And so kind of like, you know, my wife does the Christmas tree inside. I do the Christmas tree outside. And I usually kind of like have a uniform for this that makes it really official. Sweatpants and a white t-shirt. That's that's like the way you hang Christmas lights. If you wear something else when you hang Christmas lights, you're missing out. Except for the problem was, is that this Black Friday, it was like 88 degrees outside, and it was, took me about three and a half minutes to become really curmudgeon and grouchy and frustrated with the whole world. And then also, like, my house in Tempe, before I moved out here, had just a flat roof, but now it's kind of got these peaks on it, and so it's kind of just, like, I'm thinking, who are the architects who made this house? Didn't they know this would make Christmas harder? You know, like, why would you, why would you do that? Weren't they thinking about Christmas lights? And so I'm having to get up on this ladder that I found in my previous house, and it's pretty rickety, and I can't really reach the top because there's this bush in the way, and it's really annoying because... I'm not very good, so I'm up there on top of the ladder, like trying to staple into the roof. And, but then I'm thinking it's just not going to look that good because I can't really get all the way to the top. I don't have to get on the roof. I don't want to do that. That sounds like more work. And so I think, oh, I'll just kind of make it not good, and I'll be fine. You know, and I'll just kind of call it. I did it. It's fine. It'll be whatever. And I'm about halfway through this, and my new neighbor who just moved into my neighborhood a couple weeks ago comes walking over, and he goes, hey, I have a, a bigger ladder if you want help. It might be able to help you reach up there. And externally, I said, no, it's fine. I'm almost done. I kind of want it to look like this. I'll be totally fine. Thank you. Thank you for offering, though. Oh, welcome to the neighborhood. Internally, I'm going, who do you think you are walking over here insulting my manhood? You know, like, I already have a father. I don't need another father. You know, like, I don't just... Um, I, you know, and so internally I'm all like annoyed and frustrated like who do you think you are coming and offering me help you know and what kind of neighbor are you you know like. <laughs> and in my insecurity I project this hyper security oh yeah I'm doing it like this on purpose and so uh, I ended up you know finishing doing the Christmas lights finishing after I talked to him for a little bit and it just looked like total garbage and I'm frustrated all day and I'm having a hard time voicing my uh, frustration and it's kind of building and I'm getting annoyed and my wife's getting annoyed because I'm annoyed at no reason. I kind of like over time, you know, I'm asking why. I'm trying to dig deeper and get to the foundation of what's going on and I'm, I'm recognize that I've, there's two reasons why I'm really grumpy. One is because I did a garbage job on the lights and I know I'm going to have to go and redo them. And that's going to be like another two hours of work that I just don't want to do. And I know that I like burned, like missed an opportunity to connect with my neighbor and really invite and kind of, but my insecurity caused me to push away um, 
the help. And so even like that, that's kind of like a helpful understanding of like RK, you know, digging deeper, trying to get to like the real reason why um, I'm acting the way I'm acting, really trying to get to the foundation, get to the bottom of what my problem is. And so kind of like that story doesn't end well. I did it myself. I got on the roof. I never asked for help. So there's kind of like, I had to, I had to work through that and repent of that. There's no like positive ending of that story, but I had to dig deeper. <laughs> I had to dig deeper and think to like, why are my emotions doing what they're doing? Why am I so frustrated? And it kind of helped me really pause and recognize, um, give a little grace to these Jews and the Greeks in the first century. Because it's easy for us to look back on now and you see how Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth and offers this free gift of salvation. And they're like, mm, pass, we'll crucify you. And you're like, what a bunch of idiots. What are you guys thinking? Why would you do that? How would you, how would you pass on this free gift of eternal life through the Son of God? He's like, hey, I came all the way from heaven to give you this gift. You're like, no, it's good. I want it to look like this. It's bad. Um, just leave me be. And how in our insecurity, we project this stability and we project into kind of a way of keeping people away. And it, so my last weekend helped me kind of have a little more empathy not justification, but empathy for why the Jews and the Greeks go like, mm, you're not what we're looking for. I don't really, mm, I, don't, I see what you're offering, pass, I don't need a better ladder, I see what you're, no, no thanks, push away. And we see this, even this idea of beginning in the way that this kind of works out, that the Greeks and Jews had these expectations, the Greeks and Jews were looking for something, and what they were looking for ultimately wasn't Jesus, it was something else. Here's what it was, so the Greeks had this concept of beginning, the Jews had this concept at the beginning, but I want us to see how what John does with these two concepts shows us how our beginning's better. So arche, dig deep, archaeology. If I can get down to the bottom of this, then I can make sense of what's going on. So here's what John's doing on the one hand with the Jews. He's looking at Genesis 1, and the Jews had a creation story, and John's actually retelling that creation story with more information. That because Christ has come, we now see the creation story with broader eyes and bigger light. So in the beginning, we see Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. So the Jews had this creation story of this God who created all things, and that's true. But then John comes along and adds to it. It's kind of like he zooms in on it. He takes that word, in the beginning God, and zooms in on that word God and helps you see all that's going on behind that word God. In the beginning was the word. Now a Jew reading this would have gone, wait a minute, the next word was supposed to be in the beginning God, but John says in the beginning the word. Highlighting this. And the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. Likewise, John kind of takes some other concepts from here. Um, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he's in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So in, in Genesis, if you're just a Jew before Jesus, it'd be easy for you to think of God and his word as word, his word being the power by which he creates and acts in the world. The word of God in the Old Testament is the power of God to effect change in the reality. But here what you see in John is he's affirming that, but he's saying there's more to that. 
that the word was God and the word was with God. So it's not just that the word is an extension of God, but the word is himself God. And so John is unpacking and showing this bigger understanding of what's going on here in the Jewish understanding. So John takes the Jewish understanding of beginning and unpacks it and shows a bigger story. Likewise, what he's doing is he's taking this Greek understanding of beginning. So Socrates says this, quoting Thales. So Thales is a philosopher who came a couple of generations before Socrates. He says, what is the arche? Thales says it is water. So essentially you have these philosophers in the pre-Socratic times really trying to get to the understanding of this world is really messy. How can we make sense of it? Things are kind of all over the place. How can we really wrap our minds around the way the world is? Things kind of are terrible. Why, how can we, but yet there's still some order to them. So they see this chaotic, messy world and they're trying to dig down deep to get to the, what is the baseline? What's the foundation? What's the principle that makes sense of all these things? And so they had this concept called the arche. All the Greek philosophers were searching for the arche, trying to find it. If we find it, then we can make sense of my life. Once I find the arche, then I can accurately compute all the problems that I see around me. So Thales argues that it's water, and Socrates ends up arguing with him, but it is the nature of the arche, the originating principle. So in Greek thought, you have this beginning being this originating principle, the foundation on which you stand, the thing that makes sense of our whole world. And so you see John takes the Jewish understanding of beginning and he takes the Greek understanding of beginning and he's actually telling them both that if you were a first century Jew and you read John 1, you would see what John was doing. He is retelling and amplifying Genesis 1. And if you're a first century Greek person and you read John 1, you see him answering the philosophers. This is brilliant stuff here. So really what you see is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So John is taking this Greek searching for the answer. If I can just find the arche, then I'll understand my life. Then I'll make sense of what's going on. And he's taking the Jewish idea of one God and he's saying that's true, but there's more than that. Such that what you really see here is this key verse arguing for a Trinitarian understanding. There's one God and three persons. So here is sound doctrine. One God eternally exists eternally existent as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. John 1 is a key text for us recognizing and understanding a Christian, Trinitarian way of looking at the world and thinking through things. That it's not just that there is God, and it's not just that there's this foundational principle, but it's that there's this one God and three persons actively involved in the world. So John's taking the Greek view and the Jewish view and showing how this completed, holistic Christian vision is actually better. And this is what brings us to this guide. Anybody know who this is? Yell it out if you do. This is Saint Nicholas. Happy Advent, everybody. This is the guy. This is the, look at Jolly. Look at him. He's jolly old. Saint Nicholas, big smile. You know, handing out, he's, the beard is right, right? The, the, but everything else is wrong. This is the wrong, you know, so this is jolly old Saint Nicholas. So we may not know this, but Saint Nicholas was a key factor in early church history. Not just his generosity and giving things away, but at the Council of Nicaea in 325, where we get the Nicene Creed, Saint Nicholas was actually there arguing for sound biblical theology. In particular, the sound view that Jesus Christ was not made, but he was eternally existent as one of the members of the Trinity. So Saint Nick, 
Merry Christmas, he is a great theologian arguing for rich biblical Trinitarian theology. And there's actually a pretty cool story about him. I think it's cool. You'll see if it's cool or not. But there's this other guy, so kind of picture like this big council, and there's this guy named Arius who's a heretic. Arius was teaching that there's a time when the sun was not. Arius was teaching that Jesus Christ came into existence. Now, as Christians, we believe that his flesh came into existence, but he was eternally existent in and of himself. But Arius was teaching that the Son was created by the Father. That is not what the Bible teaches. So what happens in the early 4th century, they call this large council to confront and contradict this Arian teaching or Arianism. And St. Nicholas is one of the bishops there banging the drum of solid biblical theology. So, and here's what happens, is while Arius is presenting his argument for why the Son was created, which is heresy, I'm gonna keep saying that because it's very heresy. It's like number one heresy, Jesus is not God or eternally God. St. Nicholas is emotionally enraged and fired up and actually walks across the room and punches Arius in the face (laughs) because he was so mad at this guy for teaching a false view of Christ. Jolly old St. Nicholas, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he'll punch you in the face if you're a heretic. That That is the Christmas spirit, that's the Christmas message, happy Advent. So, but actually, so actually what, so he, that's like the, that's how the story goes and St. Nick, you know, confesses and he later on repents of it and says, I shouldn't have handled my anger that way. That's not the Christian way of handling your conflict. So if any of you are going to go punch any of your friends for denying the divinity of Christ, that's sin. Don't do it. That's a bad idea. But actually, so like Arianism, it sounds very hypothetical, but actually if you have friends or neighbors who are LDS or Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually are Arians. Um, it's really easy to look at Jehovah's Witnesses and LDS or Mormon folks and think that it's like this new doctrine that came up lately, but actually they're just reteaching the heresy of Arianism in the fourth century, that Christ became God or Christ was made to be God or that Christ was created, such that we read John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, that the Jehovah's Witness translation actually changes it. This is the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word a God. The Word a God. Not the Word was God, but the Word a God. So your neighbors who are LDS or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're actually held captive by a false teaching known as Arianism that was declared heresy formally in the 4th century. So jolly old St. Nicholas them and tell them to stop thinking that and they'll just stop thinking it. Just kidding, don't do that. Please don't do that. Please, pretty please don't do that. Um, so it's really easy to think about the ways in which some people like conveniently mistranslate their Bible so that they can go on believing and acting in false ways. But the reality is that we all functionally do that all the time. So here's kind of like a core concept here is that we have our confessional belief what we say we believe, and then we have our functional belief, like the belief we actually operate out of. And so what I'm gonna argue here is that a lot of us functionally mistranslate or misunderstand John 1.1 as ways of preserving our status quo. So for example, the translation of John 1.1 you might be actually working with is this. In the beginning was me, and I was with God, but really I'm essentially my God. This is the view, yeah, Jesus Christ is God, but functionally, it's me, I'm God. Or it might be like this. In the beginning were my feelings, and my feelings are with me, 
and my feelings defined reality. Or maybe this one. In the beginning was tradition, and our traditions were with God, and don't you dare mess with how things have been. Or this one. In the beginning was opinion, and my opinion was final, and my opinions must be validated, or I will go to a different church. Or lastly, this one might cut a little. In the beginning was my career, and my career was with God, and I'll put Jesus on hold for a few years while I win at life. So the beginning, the thing we stand on, what's yours? What's your beginning? What's your foundation? The thing that makes you feel okay. The thing that helps you feel like, you know what, I'm okay, I'm all right. I've found the foundation, the RK I've dug down deep. This is what I'm clinging to. This is the solid ground I stand on. The thing that gives me purpose, the thing that gives me meaning, the thing that makes sense of my world, this is the RK. Maybe it's your identity as a parent. Maybe it's your identity as married. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your savings account. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your sickness. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your church. What's the thing in your life that you stand on that gives you a security in your identity, that gives you the illusion of security in your identity, the thing that you hold on to that preserves your sense of okayness? Because that's functionally your RK. And if it's anything besides the word, in the beginning was the word, the God-man Jesus Christ, it is the, he is the only beginning, the only RK that will not let you down. You are in danger if your beginning is anything but Christ. Think about it, write it down, work to repent of it because if you're standing on a foundation, you're building a house on sand, you are in shape of your life coming undone and hopefully that will be a gift of God that turns you towards Christ recognizing that the only sure and solid ground is the God-man Jesus Christ. That's That's the beginning. The next word is the word, word, logos. Logos is what the Greek translation of we get in the word, word. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos is with God, and the logos was God. So again, we're gonna look at the way the Greeks looked at logos, the way the Jews looked at logos, and we're gonna talk about how Christ is the better logos. So here's a John Frame. He says this. The world is constantly changing. The source of stability, Heraclitus called the logos, probably the first philosophically significant use of the term. So here's what the Greeks have going on, is the Greeks see the logos as this principle. You could translate the word logos, reason, message, word, principle, like capital R reason, like almost like a personification of reason, this ideological understanding. And so the Greeks saw that the world was changing and messy and broken and unpredictable and frustrating. You know, they raised toddlers They had jobs, they had physical sickness, the world is a mess. And so what they're trying to do uh, from the earliest philosophers was trying to make sense of the world. And so what they did was they sought a principle, disembodied, disconnected, ideology, tips, advice, that was disconnected from the world, such that they saw the mess of the world and they sought rational accounts and frameworks and understandings that actually helped them escape from and not feel implicated by the mess of the world. 
So rather than staying in the mess and living in the mess, they taught, like, tried to suppress emotions, suppress our feelings, not necessarily see and be involved in the world, but they tried to find principles and understanding and abstract thought. It's kind of like they tried to spreadsheet the world into a manageable situation. They tried to analyze and personality inventory and uh, encyclopedia of the world. And if I can just analyze it and explain it, then I won't feel the pain of it. If I just know all the words and know all the right concepts and read all the right books and study the right people and look after the right things, then my world will feel and be a little less messy. So the Greeks tried to escape the mess of the world by intellectually explaining away all the pain and brokenness. Conversely, we see the Jews doing something similar. This word, remember the word, is the power of God to affect change in the world. And so the Jews, in their understanding of the Lagos, that they were seeking political deliverance and or prestige. So the Jews saw their mess, they were being oppressed by the Romans, they are actually under the thumb of unjust Caesars and unjust governments, they were marginalized, they were pushed to the cracks, pushed to the side. And they were putting their hope in that the logos, the word, the power of God would come and remove them from their present situation and put them into a new situation. Ultimately, that their situation would go away by the power of the logos and they would be set free and delivered from the bondage to brokenness. So that's one group of Jews who eagerly awaited, rightfully, that the Christ or the logos would come and overthrow Caesar and establish a new kingdom on earth. But then there's this other group of Jews that were getting frustrated and annoyed with the fact that that was taking so long. Yes, we know that the word will come, the Messiah will come, we know that. But we're going to, instead of seeking political deliverance, we're actually going to seek political acceptance and prestige in the here and now. And whole schools of thought within Judaism, the Sadducees in particular who made up the Sanhedrin, like the powerful people within Judaism, actually started to compromise their Jewish and Israeli distinctiveness. They started to compromise the morals given to to them by God himself. They started to compromise their mission and calling to be a light to the nations for the sake of gaining the acceptance of the political powers that be. Rather than clinging to the fact that God had set them apart as a people to be a light in this brokenness. They started to put aside what made them uniquely Jewish, uniquely part of the people of God, and started instead to compromise their doctrine, compromise their ethics, compromise their morals for the sake of clinging to being approved of and taken seriously by the Roman oppressors. They wanted so badly to deliver themselves from what they perceived to be their present political situation that they're willing to compromise the word of God itself for the sake of having a seat at the table and political power. I think you see that in the left in the church. I think you see that on the right in the church. People getting rid of hard doctrines. People who are no longer willing to speak truth to power because they want the smile of power. Not even in our current political climates, but what about in your offices and workplaces? Are you a minority as a Christian there? I don't mean like being the language police at your environment. I mean like are you willing to do things, willing to participate in things, willing to be soft on things, willing to get involved with stuff that you know 
is not what God has called you to for the sake of the people in your circle smiling on you and saying, you're not like those other Christians. You're right, I'm not, because I'm unfaithful. (laughs) We tend to be like the Jews and the Greeks in this way. We want to compartmentalize, explain, rationalize, get disconnected from, pull back from a reality. So both the Jews and the Greeks were looking for escape from their mess. The Jews did it through surgically removing difficult things and gaining acceptance. The Greeks did it by pulling back and trying to disembody themselves and step back from reality. I see ways in which people in the church, myself included, tend to be like the Greeks who will study and read to try and find peace. If I can just read this more good advice, get more tips, one more mommy blog, then I'll know how to discipline this two-year-old. One more tech blog and I'll have the nice, the best phone. One more book and then I'll really kind of feel okay about this. One more episode and then I'll kind of feel like I'm connected. We study and read and read and look and search and memorize. And I know Christians who have turned the Bible into this index of answers that help them, if I can just find the right thing, then I won't feel the pain of the world anymore. And that's not what the Bible is given to us for. Not to help you get out of the world, but to help you live into the world. Do you find yourself being like a Greek or like a Jew? Trying to rationalize and get away from the pain of life by explaining it rather than entering into it? Or do you find yourself compromising the the power of God in your life by the Spirit for the sake of acceptance from a non-believing world? Do you feel both of those pulls? Because I bet you do. I do. But there's good news here. Uh, that the Logos of Christ is better. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of my peripheral goals of this sermon is that you all have John 1, 1 memorized after this. There's like six words there. I don't know how to count, but there's like 20 words there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here's how John shows us the Logos in Scripture, how it's better than the Jewish understanding, and it's better than the Greek understanding, and it's actually with this key word, The Logos was with God. The word with there is the word pros. Thinking about the word prostrate, being face down. The word of God was pros God. So Jesus, the word, is pros to the Father, face to face. This is personal, relational, connected language. That Jesus, the Son, is pros with God the Father, that the Logos in Scripture is not a concept that's far off. It's not a rational compartmentalization. It's not a spreadsheet. It's not advice. It's not tips for successful living. And it's also not this eject button from my present situation. Rather, it is a person that the Greeks were seeking the right answers and the right information, and the Jews were seeking deliverance from their current, present, political moment, but rather Christians recognize that rather than seeking the Logos, rather we are sought by the Logos. That the Logos is a person, not a principle. It is a person, he is a person, not just a political deliverer. That we do not seek out him, he seeks out us. 
that is not on us to sustain our effort to learn and grow and study and learn and grow and study and deliver and navigate and, and work and upward mobility and find a way to influence. Rather, our hope is not in our capacity to seek out and find, but our hope is in the fact that we have been sought out and found by the person of Jesus, and that is the Christmas message. That, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. That the Christian vision of the Logos is fundamentally better than the Greek and Jewish understanding of the Logos. And not only is it a better vision, it's a true vision. That God is not a God who gives us good advice and says, here's some tips for how you could do better in your broken messiness. He is not a God of good advice. He's a God of good news. He says Christ has come to earth. He is God in the flesh. The core central message of Christmas is not that God has come to get you out of here, but rather that God has come to be with you when you are still here. That your hope is not that you eventually get out of your broken body. Your hope is not that you eventually get out of your broken job. Your hope is not that you eventually get out of your broken marriage or your broken home. Your hope is not that you'll eventually finally read the book that makes sense of all things and you'll finally have a sense of control. If you seek for control through understanding and principles, you are Greek. If you seek for control through only political influence and power, you are Jewish. But if you recognize that the hope of Christmas is not that God will get us out out of here, but that he personally will be here with us. Just as the son was pros the father, face to face with the father, so now also he is with us now face to face with you. This is like the core benediction of the Old Testament that he'll make his face shine upon you. Do you get that sense that the face of Jesus has taken on flesh and has walked this earth and now by his spirit he is face to face with you, that he sees you in your pain and brokenness, he sees you in your present struggle, he sees you in your confusion, he sees you in your faithlessness, your faithless moments, he sees you in your disconnectedness, he sees you when you're insecure, projecting security, pushing people away, that he's the neighbor who moves in and offers help, and we in our insecurity push him away and say, no, I'm fine, I want it to be like this. This is the Christmas message, that Christ has come into your mess. And it is true that he will eventually wipe away all brokenness, but that's the message of the second Christmas, not the first Christmas. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. You are with us. You are Emmanuel. You're with us in this room. God, let your spirit show our hearts the false arches, the false false logoses that we turn to, these things that we look for for meaning and security that ultimately only meaning and security can be found in you. God, whatever it is, all these people and myself in this room are looking for. Let us look to you first and foremost. Draw our hearts back to you and I pray this Advent season can be a time for us to see you with the eyes of our heart. Amen.